pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now on the very front end of what some social commentators refer to as the fall holiday season. We know this because we find ourselves besieged on every side by pumpkin spice. Pumpkin spice lattes, muffins, scones, candles. I don't know if you noticed, we even have pumpkin spice creamer sitting right out there in our kitchen. Now, the good news is that this means that the holidays that are real holidays are actually just right around the corner. All Hallows' Eve and Reformation Day, Thanksgiving, Advent and Christmas, they're all just around the corner. Our text for this morning is a good one to mull over as Advent approaches this year. Now, I didn't grow up in a tradition that paid any kind of attention to the liturgical calendar of the church, so I never had anyone explain to me why it was that we would celebrate Advent for 30 days, but there were only 12 days of Christmas. I wonder if you've ever contemplated that or thought about why is it we spend 30 days waiting for something that we're only going to spend 12 days celebrating. Well, the explanations that I've come across didn't really help me out. Some would say, well, we wait that long because it's, it's in honor of the saints in the Old Testament who had to wait literally for thousands of years for God's Messiah to appear. Some would say it adds to the enjoyment of Christmas Eve and Christmas Day if we spend that month preparing ourselves and preparing our hearts to celebrate the coming of God into the world. But none of those explanations really give us a valid biblical reason for why we observe Advent in this particular way. Well, enter 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. For in it, John's going to give us a variation on a theme. The theme is the two appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us of his coming again in chapter 2, verse 28, and chapter 3, verse 2, or as he puts it, he will appear, he will come, he is coming again. But John also tells us that Christ has already appeared. And in chapter 3, verse 5, and in chapter 3, verse 8, we're told exactly what Jesus has accomplished in his first appearing. Now, just to make sure that we don't miss this theme of appearing, he tells us as Christians in chapter 3, verse 2, that what we will be has not yet appeared. You see, the saints of the Old Testament aren't the only ones who are waiting for the appearing of God's Christ. Yes, he has appeared. But friends, he's going to appear again. And so in this Advent season, we too are waiting for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this waiting in hope was a characteristic of the early church. I remember it as being a characteristic of my grandparents' generation of believers. They looked forward with great joy to the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But I wonder, how much does it characterize us now? Are we mindful of the fact that we are living between the two appearances of Jesus and that it ought to fill us with great hope? Well, on page five in your bulletin for this morning, you'll see the big idea for our time together, and it's this. John calls Christians to live out the appearances of Jesus Christ. He has appeared, and that impacts the way we live. He will appear, and that ought to impact the way in which we live. So how then do we live out the appearances of Jesus Christ? Well, three points we want to make. First, uh, we are to have a God-given confidence. We're to have a God-given confidence. In chapter 2, verse 28, John repeats a command that he's already given us. He tells us that we are to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ for a particular reason. We're to abide in Christ so that when he appears, we can have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, please understand That when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, and he is going to return, and he will return bodily, the rest of it we can argue about later, but let's just understand. Christ is coming again, he's coming again bodily, and when he does, there are only two options in terms of how you and I will greet that day. The Bible makes it clear there's not some sort of spectrum of responses to Jesus' return. Jesus makes that clear in the upper room discourse. When he comes again, there are going to be some who will rejoice at his coming, and there are going to be some who will not be happy at all. Paul makes it clear in 1 and 2 Thessalonians that the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to be greeted by his people with a joyous shout. And for those who are not in Christ, They're going to view it as a dreaded day, a day they didn't think would ever get here. And John paints a really somber picture for us in Revelation. That the nations who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when they see that Christ is returning, they're going to actually call for the mountains to fall on them. Because the day of God's Christ has appeared and he's coming in his judgment. But it's interesting, and don't miss this, in chapter 2, verse 28, when John says, hey, I want you to have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He doesn't say that we would shrink from him in terror, but he says that we would shrink from him in shame. And let's keep in mind, That in this particular section, in chapter 2, verse 28, he begins by addressing it to little children. So he's talking to Christians. And he's saying to Christians, hey, listen, it's possible for you to be saved, but to greet the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not with confidence, but with shame. You're saying, well, why why would he say shame? Why would we be ashamed when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Well, shame is a natural response 
for those who have known fellowship with God, but turn their back on him. You remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3? After Adam and Eve decided that God didn't, couldn't be trusted and therefore didn't need to be obeyed, Adam told God, we heard you coming and we were ashamed. So shame is our natural response when we've known fellowship with God and yet we turn our back on him. When we know that Jesus is coming again, we're not going to be terrified, but we will be ashamed. So John is reminding us, he's telling us, that when we are abiding in Christ, we have no need to be ashamed. When we are abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ, when Jesus comes again, we will meet that day with confidence and not with shame. Secondly, John tells us that as we live out the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to cultivate a family resemblance. We ought to cultivate a family resemblance. Now, uh, in, through, all throughout the book of 1 John, there are three tests that John gives us to know whether or not we are within the fellowship of the apostolic faith. There's a test of doctrine, and that test of doctrine centers around the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a moral test. In other words, how do you live your life? What kinds of things are you doing? What kinds of things are you not doing? And then there is the love test. Can you say that you love Jesus and yet hate your brothers and sisters in Christ? And so John is returning now to the second of the three tests that fill the letter. What does it mean exactly to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it just some sort of feeling? Is it just some sort of Zen state that you go, I'm following the Lord Jesus Christ? No, John says, you can know that you are abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ if you are practicing righteousness. And we are to practice righteousness because we are indeed God's children. Look at verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. John is reminding us that if we are abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ, it means we are practicing righteousness. And we're practicing righteousness because we've been born of him. And because we've been born of him, we are his children. Children then have, they, there is a family resemblance within particular families. And so John is telling us, listen, as a child, you know your father. You're going to abide in righteousness because you know God the Father. Look at verse 1. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But we do. We do know our father. As children, we know who our Father is. And not only that, but as children in verse 2, we look like our older brother, Jesus. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, there's a lot of hymns and a lot of he's. And we're going, is he talking about God the Father? Is he talking about God the Son? Well, this is tied 
to Christ's appearing. When he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him, Jesus, because we will see Jesus as he is. And so cultivating that family resemblance means that we look more and more like our older brother, Jesus Christ. And not only that, but in verse 3, we're told that as children, we're going to act like our older brother and our father. It's very clear in verse 2 who the he is. But the him in verse 3 could be God the Father or God the Son. It's intentionally ambiguous. As children, we act like our brother and we act like our father. And this is not new. When Rebecca read our Old Testament reading for us this morning, you may have noted, I hope you did anyway, that when, when God gives the command not to eat bugs, which is just a good idea, period. But when he gives us the command not to eat bugs, did you know what he tied it to? He doesn't say you shouldn't eat bugs because cows are better. Though they are. He doesn't say you shouldn't eat bugs because bacon is better, because a little later he's going to tell them they can't eat bacon either. No, he says don't eat bugs. Why? Because you're to be holy as I am holy. I redeemed you. I set you apart. And as my people, as those whom I have redeemed, you are to act like me. You're to be set apart. And so as children, what's it mean to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ? It means that we're practicing righteousness. Why are we practicing righteousness? Because we're God's children. Because we're in his family. And families have a particular, res uh, they, there's a family resemblance that we're trying to cultivate. So I wonder this morning, is this the family resemblance that you're cultivating? Now, also no that what John is telling us, what he's commanding us to do here, is actually really good news uh, for if you grew up in a family that was kind of a dumpster fire, that was marked by chaos and drama and dysfunction, right? If that's your family, if that was your biological family that you grew up in, please understand that John is telling you that's not how you have to live that you're part of another family. And the kind of chaos and drama and dysfunction that may have characterized the family that you grew up in, you're part of a new family now. And so your new family doesn't mean that the cops have to show up every Christmas or every Thanksgiving. Your new family and bearing a resemblance to the new family means that you're going to be characterized not by chaos, drama, and dysfunction, but by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, that's the family you're a part of. That's your family legacy. That's your family's heritage. So is that the resemblance that you're cultivating? Are you cultivating another kind of resemblance? Thirdly, then, we're told to become who we are. 
We're told to become who we are. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 4 through verse 10, John gives us, again, an extended conversation on sin and the nature and character of sin. And he wants to make sure that we understand living in God's family means that we're going to make a clean break with sin. We're not going to trifle with it. We're not going to sort of play around the edges of it. We're not going to have a kind of fast and loose relationship with it. No, we're going to make a clean break with it. And we're going to make a clean break with it because we understand what sin really is. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So when God, in His grace and in His love and in His mercy and in His sovereignty, gave us the Ten Commandments, sin is saying, well, you know what, God? Uh, you don't really know what you're talking about. And so I'm going to step away from, I'm going to, it's any want of conformity of or, or any transgression of or want of conformity to God's law. That's what sin is. And so we understand what sin is. We understand that when we sin, we're actually rebelling against God and we're telling God he doesn't know what he's talking about. It also means that we make a clean break with sin because we understand that Jesus' first appearing was to take away sin. And he could only do that, verse 5, because he was sinless. You know that he appeared to take away sin. And in him there is no sin. So we make a clean break with sin because we understand we're basically rebelling against God our Father. We're making a clean break with sin because we understand that's why Christ came to die. He had to die for his, uh, for our sin and not for his own. And so abiding in him, living in light of these two appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ means that we're not going to be characterized by sin. Now, it doesn't mean that we will never sin. John has pointed that out several times. We have to understand that God's grace is free but it's not cheap. And so when we do sin, are we moved to then repent of our sin? Is that the nature and character of our life? Understanding that sin is telling God he doesn't know what he's doing and understand that it was because of sin that Jesus had to die. Do we then repent of our sin, moved by our rebellion? Or do we, under, do we act as though grace is free and cheap? One of the great New Testament scholars of the last century was a man named F.F. F. Bruce. Uh, he was a Scotsman who grew up in sort of a rural part of Scotland and did his undergraduate work at the University of Aberdeen. Uh, if you've never been to Aberdeen, Scotland, you need to know that it, uh, the sun shines for roughly two weeks out of the year in Aberdeen. And here's how they greet one another in the city of Aberdeen. Miserable day, isn't it? So here's F.F. Bruce, comes down from a rural part of Scotland, goes to University of Aberdeen, does really well, uh, gets a scholarship and gets accepted uh, to Cambridge. And so here's this, basically, this kind of Scottish redneck 
going to Cambridge University. And he, uh, it's really interesting to read in his, in his autobiography because uh, he mentions all the times in which just in life about the, the college that he was a part of, he would be told uh, in a very uh, sort of highfalutin tone, oh, yes, well, we don't do that sort of thing here. Oh, yes, well, we don't do that sort of thing here. Every family has those kinds of things. Yeah, we don't do that sort of thing here. And one of the joys that happens when you get married is when what your family doesn't do that sort of thing conflicts with your spouses when they don't do that sort of thing. And you have to sort of figure it out and negotiate, well, what sort of thing are we going to do here? We sin but we're moved to repent of our sin. That's the sort of thing we do in God's family. That's who we are. We are people who, when we sin, we are moved to repent of it. And we repent because we understand that our sin is lawlessness. And we repent because we understand that Christ died to take away our sin. Verses 6 to 10 then go on to spell out more of the implications of belonging to this particular family. Most notably, who we are in relationship to our sin. And the good news, friends, is this. Our sin does not need to define us. What ought to define us instead of our sin is the fact that as he tells us in verse 9, we have been born of God. You were once children of the devil, but you're now children of God. That your relationship to sin now is fundamentally different. It no longer defines you. Rather, the new birth that you have received in the Lord Jesus Christ and this practice of righteousness, those are the things that define you. Now, I think it's interesting that in verse 7, he talks about practicing righteousness. And then in verse 8, he talks about makes a practice of sinning. One of the things that's really interesting uh, in, in certain kinds of self-help spaces now is there's more and more emphasis on uh, what are your daily practices? What are your daily habits? If you get up every morning and you make a habit out of eating a pound of bacon and drinking an entire pot of coffee, that practice is going to have particular implications on your life. I was watching recently, it was an old YouTube video. Uh, George Burns was uh, the, the late comedian who lived, I think, to be like 101 or 102. He was on The Tonight Show. And he's on The Tonight Show with a cigar in hand. And it wasn't a prop. It was lit. It was going. And at this point, he's in his 90s. And Johnny Carson's like, really? What, what does your doctor say about that? And George goes, well, my doctor's dead. Boomch. So I don't listen to him anymore. And Johnny's like, really? So you just, and George is like, yes, I smoke 10 to 15 cigars every single day. That's his practice. So let's ask ourselves what are our practices 
as it relates to sin. What habits are a part of your day that are either moving you towards God or towards your sin? Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Friends, becoming who you are is more than simply saying, yes, I'm a child of God. No, becoming who you are means that in your practice, you are moving towards God and you're moving away from your sin. So let me ask you this morning, uh, in which direction are your habits moving you? If I asked you to describe uh, sort of how you begin and end your day. Are those habits that promote godliness or are those habits that take sin and treat it like it's maybe not such a big deal? Do you have habits in your life that are set up to help you move away or move towards? Or do you just, eh, whatever. I'll deal with it as it comes. There's no need to have a practice of anything. John reminds us that if we are indeed God's children, then we are those who make a practice of righteousness. But if we are not, then we're making a practice not of righteousness, but we're making a practice of sinning. This morning, as we come to the Lord's table, we have a visual reminder that Jesus not only has appeared, but he will appear. Jesus has appeared, and he has taken away sin, and he's destroyed the works of the devil, and he did so through the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his own body. But the table also speaks to us of a table that's yet to come, we know that Jesus will appear again. And John tells us that if we're here this morning, the table is not just a place in which we remember what it is that Jesus has done in his first appearing, but it also becomes a place in which we celebrate because we know that he's coming again. And when he does appear the second time, we can be confident. But we come to the table primarily because it's a family table. And those who have been born of God have been invited by God himself to come and to take, and to eat. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, the two appearings of the Lord Jesus. Father, may we live our lives knowing with certainty that Jesus is coming again. And, and we know how weird that sounds. Like there are a whole bunch of folks who aren't a part of uh, not just this church, but who aren't a part of the Christian tradition. who think that just sounds like that just sounds as crazy as Ragnarok. And yet, Father, we know that just as certainly as Jesus came the first time, he will appear again. And we bless you for in his first appearing, 
the Lord Jesus Christ destroyed the works of the devil and he overcame sin. And we know that in his coming again, Father, we can be confident. We don't have to face his coming with shame, but we can face his coming with confidence. So we pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.